Okay. Uh, the second half, the first class on application. Uh, Mark brought up a good question during the break that I want to talk about a little bit, and that's a commandment in in the Mosaic Law that prohibits tattooing. Did you have a reference on that? I thought it was in Leviticus. I can find it. Yeah, it's in Leviticus or Numbers. Now, this prohibits... Now, today, uh, tattooing is, is extremely popular. And uh, if you're of a younger generation, probably 50 and under, the younger you get, the more acceptable tattooing is. And there are a lot of Christian parents who w- want to go to the Mosaic Law there, to the prohibition against tattooing, and tell their kids... You know, don't tattoo. I think that you have to establish this kind of authority from the time you're a baby and establish a parental authority in these areas. My favorite story is the story of um, the mother who, from from the time her child was old enough to understand anything about language or tattooing, the principle was established that the, that, that she could tattoo any body part that she wanted to do away with. Any body part that, that she felt was expendable, she could tattoo because the instant she got it tattooed, it was going to be cut off. But, you know, you start teaching, and I remember that from my parents. This is just a, this is an application. I remember when I was a kid, if you ever, from the time, I think from the time I could even understood what a car or ownership was, if you are going to have a car, you're going to earn it and buy it yourself. And, if you, you know, and numerous things like that. But as time went by, and when I graduated from high school, my parents surprised me and they bought me a car for graduation. And, but I never expected to be given anything. That, it would just establish that everything I had, I was going to have to work for and earn. My dad was completely against any kind of um, allowance. He said, you know, p- parents who give their kids money are creating a welfare dependency society. You know, they're giving their kids money for something. I would get a weekly allowance if I earned it. I had to, uh, because my mother had had polio right before I was born, we always had a maid. We always had to have have somebody. And so Monday through Friday. And so I grew up, and I never, during the week, I never had to make my bed, never had to clean up my room or anything like that. But I did on the weekends. And if I wanted to get 50 cents, that was before inflation. Fifty cents was a lot of money. If I wanted to get fifty cents, then I had to clean my room. But I had to do it both days. If I cleaned it on Saturday and didn't do it on Sunday, I didn't get nothing. I didn't get a quarter. I had to do it both days. And it had to pass inspection. Everything had to be put away. Everything had to be perfect. But I did I was never just given something for the sake of of, of a normal regular giving. Now, every now and then, my dad might give me five bucks or, you know, a quarter or whatever. But, but it wasn't a regular, regular thing. I had, and and that built a work ethic in me. From so that when I first chance I got to to, to work, I mean, I was nine years, nine, uh, ninth grade rather, maybe eighth grade. I was selling seat backs at Rice Stadium. Now, my parents were, you know, they they weren't. Wealthy, but they were, they, they, my dad was a chief engineer for Tenneco. He did, they did well, but you know, I'm out there with all kinds of people working there. I learned how to pitch quarters out there at Rice Stadium with all, with all the black guys who were, who were down there coming out of the fifth ward and third ward who were working and making money. 
And uh, I worked at the Dome Stadium all through high school, but I, I had all kinds of different jobs. But parents have to instill these things early on, and that's these things with tattooing is very popular, and I got a little bit away from that. But tattooing has its origin in among the Egyptians, and it grew out of the, a religious framework. Now, a lot of things that practices that come along, like tattooing, are firmly grounded, whether later on in India or later on in, in Asia, they're all grounded within a religious framework, a religious or metaphysical foundation. In e- Egyptian religion, the body, whatever you took with you from this life, this is why they put all of the uh, clothing and gold and silver and jewelry and everything like that, weapons, into the tombs was because that's what you took. Whatever you had with you there is what you took into the next world. So if you your body was going to be glorified in the next world, then it had to be glorified in this life. And the way you glorified your body was to decorate it. And so this was done through jewelry and it was done through tattooing. So that has its root in in that uh, that that mentality. So. Many of these laws, there's also another law in the Mosaic Law that the, that, uh, the men were not supposed to squ- square off their beard. And that was because that's how the, the, uh, that was the style that the priests of Baal wore. So there, there was a religious background there. So does that mean that today if you, uh, square off your beard that that's wrong? And these are the kinds of things you have to you have to really work through in thinking about this. In what sense uh, today, no, nobody or very few people would uh, correlate uh, a religious framework to tattooing. It's popular, but it's still decorating the body. So these kinds of things need to be thought through a lot more uh, profoundly than they are. They're they're not simple. Uh, to go through there, but that, that's where you're dealing with the difference with with the implication. What are the implications of the laws of uh, in the Mosaic Law, the the economic laws, and by understanding the implications that they reflected um, laws that uh, 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 divine institutions that God had built into the framework of creation. This is where you have the Puritans and others develop. Their standards for uh, free market economics and for a republican form of government, representative form of government, and that that government ultimately came from the a delegation of power from the pe- of authority from the people. These kinds of things came out of their understanding of of uh, of the implications of the Mosaic Law. Now, in some cases, they were trying to do a cross application. I understand that. But they, they were really looking at, if you, using my, ter- my terminological breakdown, they're really looking at ways in which there are parallels that they can apply. Because once you realize that you're not taking your money to the temple, um, you're, you're, you're getting away from a literal interpretation. So there's a lot of other issues that are related to that. But that's, that's kind of the bottom line there. Any other questions on this? Judy. Uh, that uh, Chronicles uh, passage, you know, that you get dispensations all mixed up if if you're going to go back to that. I mean, I've been in lots of prayer meetings where 
people pray. Sure, that's, that's a good point. Expecting God to but, keep but America. Race, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull John Walter, what John Walter did to me one time. That it's not wrong because it violates dispensations. It's wrong because it's bad hermeneutics. Because it's bad hermeneutics, it's going to say, you know, we have to be careful. What I'm getting at here is we have to be careful. We're not determining that an interpretation is right, or an application is right or wrong because of dispensationalism. We're letting our application flow from the interpretation, and ultimately that's how we get dispensational theology. Something's right not because it's dispensational, but because it's biblical. Ah, but because it's biblical, we believe it's dispensational. I remember making that mistake one time, and this was like 15 or 16 years ago. I was sitting in Dr. Walver's office, and I made the comment about our view of the spiritual life and said, well, this is a dispensationally consistent view of, of the spiritual life. And he said, but it's true, not because it's dispensational, but because it's biblical. Don't forget that. Don't put the cart before the horse. The cart often is theology. And within our background and our tradition, this is an extremely common problem is to use theology to to then interpret, uh, understand a passage rather than going to the passage itself and deriving the theology and the application from the passage now, if, if our theology's right, we're not going to have a conflict. The trouble is some people look at this or look at a passage like what we're doing in, in, uh, in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and they've heard some principles on the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount is, is not for the church age, the Sermon on the Mount is for the millennial kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount is this or that or whatever. And so they use that then to come and interpret the Sermon on the Mount, rather than looking contextually at Matthew, what Jesus is doing, what he's teaching. And when you do it from the text up, your conclusions are not going to be, I do not believe, your conclusions won't be inconsistent with a sound dispensational theology. Now, you may have to adjust your, some things within your understanding of dispensational theology because it's being corrected by the Scripture. And there were a lot of things that dispensationalists said over the years, especially the early generations, even Schofield. Schofield thought that, that in the Old Testament, Jews were saved by obeying the law. Schofield was just dead wrong. And, and so that, you know, exegesis eventually corrects those theological errors. So we always have to develop our understanding of the scripture from the, from our verses all the way up. Now one of the things that I've always thought was, uh, important is that we look at scripture and we take, scripture A teaches that Jesus is God. Scripture B teaches that Jesus is man. So we put, if A is true and B is true, then we come to a conclusion that Jesus is the God-man. Nowhere in the Scripture does it teach that does it say that Jesus is the God-man, right? But it teaches it everywhere. Philippians two, He's God and He's man, but it never says He's the God-man. Never makes that kind of a precise, overt statement. 
that is really a conclusion that is derived from putting two scripture passages together. And if A is true and B is true, then C has to be true. Now, the thing that we do there, if we have a series of these kinds of conclusions, then we can look at C1 and C2 and say if C1 is true, conclusion 1 is true over here, and conclusion 2 is true here, then we can go to D and say that has to be true. Now, when we get to D, D may not be precisely stated anywhere in the Scripture, but we can trace, okay, we can trace that D is true because it's the proper logical conclusion from B1 being true and B2 being true, or C1 being true, conclusion 1 being true, and conclusion 2 being true. And that's true because Scripture says A is true and B is true, therefore conclusion 1 is true. But we have to be able to trace our anchor all the way to the text if we're going to have a logic chain. And what a lot of pastors and theologians are afraid to do is get above that first level of logical conclusion. And there are too many pastors who do get to a level two or level three, and all of a sudden it's like they've slipped their anchor from the text because you can't trace these, oh, this is a logical principle from Scripture. You'll hear people say, this is a principle of Scripture. Well, let's trace it. Where can, how can you show that that is derived from Scripture? And a lot of times you can't do that. And so we have to be, that's what I'm arguing here is you have to be very careful how we, how we handle that. It may be appealed to our common sense. It may be logically true. But we always have to have that anchor, anchor in the text. Okay. Let's look at, um, at our textbook, just a couple of things that I think uh, we ought to emphasize here. Application, as I pointed out already, is somewhat difficult. And I think application is difficult because we have a sin nature that only wants to apply the word if it's convenient or comfortable. And we don't want to admit that. We have a sin nature that is at odds with what God is trying to do in transforming us and changing us. And this is why Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. Because we have this hidden enemy inside of us that really wants to uh, avoid applying Scripture. So we can come up with a lot of ways to avoid uh, application. Hendricks talks about this. Uh, I don't know the exact page number, but he talks about four. It's in the uh, chapter uh, 40, I believe. No, chapter 39. Four substitutes for application. The first one he talks about is that we substitute interpretation for application. We can, and, we, and I'll put an, uh, I'll put an addendum to this. We can substitute theology. Our intellectual stimulation, that may be one he comes up with later, for application. We think that because we've studied it, we've interpreted it, we've read all the history and background, that somehow we're applying it. And we're, all we're doing is we're still dealing with trying to understand what the Scripture says and what it means, and we're sort of subtly sidestepping what it means to me, that if this is true, how should that change me? If this is true, what difference does it make? And sometimes when we study passages or study certain doctrines, 
it's not readily apparent how that should change us. That doesn't mean that somehow we're missing application because all these things will fit together to, I believe the Holy Spirit will show how these things should be applied in our, in our own life. But, but we need to make sure that we don't get sucked into sort of a superficial view of application as well, which doesn't allow us to delve into intricacies of interpretation. So we have to walk between these two opposites. Number one, um, substituting interpretation for application, and number two, reducing application to something that that is somewhat uh, superficial. That's what the problem was with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're making application superficial and external as opposed to dealing with internal changes of mindset and changes of attitude. And that gets real difficult for us. A second problem that um, Hendricks brings up is that we substitute a superficial obedience for substantive life change, uh, a superficial obedience to substantive life change. And that is really going to get to something he brings up later on, is that we need to really think about the word. In application, it, it, we have to think profoundly about what the Bible says, but we also have to be willing to think honestly and profoundly about who we are. And that's not easy. The older I get, the more I realize that most of us don't really want to see us see ourselves as we really are. It's not real pretty. Even if we're believers and we've been around a long time and we have a measure of maturity, the heart is still deceptive and wicked above all things. We're still sinners. We don't have to sin. We don't have to walk according to the sin nature. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on inside of our heads that we know isn't pretty, and we really don't want anybody else looking at. And we don't like to look at it in the mirror either, in the mirror of God's Word, because it's really convicting. We feel like we're just alone. So it's easier just to kind of shove these things back into the back into the attic or into the mental closet somewhere and not uh, not deal with it. Um, Hendricks gives an example from the business world. It's easy to talk about the areas where we are applying something and just ignore the areas where we don't or where it's very difficult. And I think this is true. He, In a couple of these examples, he talks about how um, we have people in our careers that don't struggle with how their career should function in light of God's word. Sunday they go home, Sunday night they go to bed, Monday morning they wake up and they go to their job, whether they're a teacher, whether they're a lawyer, whether they're an an economist or a politician or whatever field it may be, have we, do we have people who really understand what it means to be a teacher and teaching from a, a complete biblical value system? 
Now, 40 or 50 years ago, that would not have been the problem that it's becoming today. Because in today's world, teachers can't discipline kids. Uh, you can't even put your hand on their shoulder. You can't, there, there are things that you cannot say, you can't isolate a kid. Uh, we were doing the Good News Club. And uh, about the third week, I told Pam, I said, well, I got this kid who's real hyperactive, so I just made him sit at the end of the table. You can't do that. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. And so what happens is, as the world system changes its values and its pressure to change its values, if you're going to work and operate in, in that environment, then it's going to impact your ethical value system in one way or another. Just think about the area of same-sex marriage. We're going to deal more and more with a pagan environment where we're going to be working with people, some of you, not me, hopefully, are going to be working with people who are uh, in, in a same-sex marriage. And you're forced by policies of your company to have policies that indicate that this is validated, this is okay. So you're in a supervisory role, and you're having to validate, by one in one way or another, behavior, ethical behavior on the part of people under you that you know is wrong. That has an eroding effect on your value system because you're having to accept some form of behavior at, at, in the office that personally and at home you wouldn't accept. Right? You run into that, Jeff? Sure. And this is getting more and more pronounced. I saw this coming back in the, in the 70s when I was a teacher, that you're, you're pressed. This is subtle ways in which we're pressed to conform to the world. And so rather than face these things because, hey, this is my livelihood, I'm a lawyer, yet I'm having to do things as a lawyer that really are counter to Scripture. And if I think about that too much, then I can't work where I'm working. And it may be in any field of, uh, of law. Maybe you're working for a corporation, uh, things that you're, you're doing in order to establish, uh, you know, uh, business practices or whatever, but you're having to uh, affirm or validate behavior that you if you really thought about it you couldn't reconcile with scripture this is going to come become more and more of a problem with 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 christians and so it's easier to just go with with superficial obedience rather than um, being true to uh, biblical perspectives and trying to figure out how to apply those things with reference to your career because this impacts so many areas in life. It impacts your grocery bill, your how you pay your rent, where you can live, what kind of house you can live in, your, your income. And so when you start making compromises in order to uh, make more money or to preserve, you have to be very careful in how you think these things through uh, biblically so that you don't end up waking up 15 years down the road and realize you've basically eviscerated your spiritual life. And that can happen easily. We don't see it happening over, over, over time. Third area that, that uh, Hendricks brings up that's a problem for application is we substitute rationalization 
for he calls it repentance. I would say for just change in our life. We substitute rationalization. Well, I really don't want to do that. Um, and I think that's the whole process of sanctification is realizing more and more as the older we get that we have to be more consistent in applying Scripture in broader areas of our life. And there are a lot of Christians who are, will, be, will settle for a low level of application simply because they don't, they know that the higher they go, the more committed they become as a disciple, the more it puts them in conflict with everybody around them. And so for some people who are, uh, whose personality is oriented towards a conflict avoidance, they're just not going to ever say anything or do anything. They just want to keep their relationship with God private. But then they're never confronting the world around them. And the confrontation with the world around them doesn't have to be a hostile or negative one. But some people don't know how to, how to confront the world around them without being angry because it just goes against their, their personality. So these things, um, are ways in which we end up going, well, I'm just gonna, I just can't do it. That's just not realistic for me in my life right now. In which case, we've just said the Word of God isn't sufficient. So it's challenge. That's why some people never will rise above the le- level of being a baby or, or infant believers because they just can't figure out how to deal with the implications of a consistent Christian walk in their, in their life and their relationships. Third area that's common that he points out is we substitute an emotional experience for a volitional decision. This happens in so many churches that, that the, the, the messages are emotional in order to manipulate people emotionally rather than to challenge them intellectually to change. And so people think that because they've been, been moved emotionally by the message that this is the, 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 this indicates that they're changing spiritually. And it doesn't. It just means that they had a, an emotional encounter, that something was said that was true. They cried a little bit, wept a little bit, but nothing happens. Nothing changes uh, when they go home. They just had an emotional uh, response, but the Word of God isn't focusing on an emotional response, but on a actual change. So we have to learn to honestly look in the mirror of God's word, which is what James talks about in James chapter 2, verses 21 and following. Does a man get up, look in the mirror, and go away without paying attention to what he sees? Do you get up in the morning and you go to the mirror and you've got bad head and, you know, everything else, your face is swollen, you've got water retention, you look uh, horrible in the morning, and you just say, oh, well, and go get dressed and go out the door. And you didn't shave and you didn't comb your hair. Now, none of us would do that, hopefully. Some of us do that because as you get older, you can't really see in the mirror anymore. The, the, the beard is no longer dark. It's white. You don't see that you didn't shave this morning. And halfway to work, you go, uh-oh, I forgot to shave. Never happened to you, has it? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Mm-mm. 
Now, see, that's aided and abetted by the fact that you can't even see the person in the mirror. Not only is the beard white, so you don't see it, but your eyesight's gone, so you don't see it anyway. So you get spiritual myopia as well. So that those are the problems. So we have to be honest with ourselves. And that's one of the most difficult things, I think, in the Christian life is just being honest with, with ourselves and who we are. So... What, what do we do in terms of application? How do we, how do we go through this pro- process that ends up with a change? And Hendricks goes through this in the next chapter. I think he's got a good outline for it. First of all, we really have to know what the text says. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking we know that what the text says and we're misapplying it. For example, 2 Corinthians 7.14, how many Christians, as, as Judy pointed out, are praying on the basis of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that God would restore the nation? But they're reading somebody else's mail. That promise is given to Israel. It's not given to us. Now, if they're praying on the basis of, of Jeremiah 18, then it's a different issue. But if you're praying on the basis of Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen, you're saying, "God, I'm claiming this promise," and God's up there going, "I didn't promise you that." We have to make sure that the promise we're claiming is a promise that is our promise and wasn't addressed to our next door neighbor. So we have to really understand what the text says. We have to know the text; it's observation. We have to properly interpret the text. Then we can come up with the right application and implication for uh, our our own lives. And um, if we're off, we're not going to see results. I think this is one reason why a lot of people don't think that the Bible is sufficient is because they don't understand the Bible. They have a lot of misunderstandings. Je- uh, Jeff and I were talking in, in the, um, during the break about the debate that took place uh, last uh, Tuesday night between Ken Ham and, um, and Bill Nye. And there were so many things. I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to listen to the whole thing yet, but I've listened to probably two-thirds of it. And Bill Nye keeps throwing out little things here and there that he claims are the position of Christians that aren't. And just all kinds of what? Lots of straw men. Lots of straw men. And he just, this is what Christian. and it's not what Christians believe. Christians don't believe those things. But this is a, typically from an unbeliever, this is a misunderstanding of what the scripture says. But a lot of Christians do that too. They don't take the time to really know and understand what the scripture is saying and what the scripture is talking about. So they don't understand why it doesn't work when they start going to God for uh, answers to prayer. Uh, second thing that, uh, that Hendricks brings out, which I think is, uh, I'm not sure I would use the same word. He says relate, that we have to relate the scripture to our experience. I'm not sure that I would use that word, but we have to think about the word. He does talk about this in terms of meditation. We really have to take time to reflect. He talks about using a journal or writing things down. Um, some people may not. Uh, I still like to write things down. I heard recently that at the... Um, John MacArthur Seminary, the Master Seminary in California, has a Shepherds Conference every year, 
And last year they had a, a whole group of guys are teaching them how to use, they were selling fountain pens and, and notebooks and teaching the, teaching younger generation how to sit and write because writing slows you down. Writing gives you an opportunity to think more about what you're doing. Writing gives you the opportunity to to reflect upon the words, to which word you want to use, how you want to craft your sentence, how you want to do your logic. And I think there's a lot of value to that. I don't think that's an absolute, but I think that that we need to slow down a little bit in terms of our of our of our study. So we need to take the word and see how it does correlate over to our own life. Now, there's a page there that's highlighted in blue where he gives a a list, and this is not an exhaustive list. I think it's on page 295. I don't know what that is. There's so many different editions of different books that are out now that it's hard to... um, Sometimes I miss the old days. 290, it's in chapter 40. Remember the old days when everybody had a Schofield reference Bible? And you could just say, if you can't find it, go to page 375. And everybody would go to the same page. Now you've got people in the congregation with six different study Bibles and eight different translations and and everybody's reading something different, but things change. Take a spiritual inventory. You can probably think through these questions and add some of your own. Uh, talks about your personal questions for, for your personal life, for your family life, your church life, your work life, your community. I would add, add issues in there related to economics, your personal finances, maybe some other areas. Uh, in the community, I was pleased to see he added something. Uh, do you regularly exercise your right and responsibility as a citizen to cast an informed vote? Well, how do you get an informed vote? Uh, how do you decide as a Christian how you should vote once you are informed as to the candidate's positions? Do you pay, do you pay your fair share of taxes? You think that's the right way to put that? I don't either. I think the question is, do you pay the legal, your, your legally required amount of taxes? I think it should be, do you pay 10%? Well, that, that's, that's not, the, the law doesn't say that. Say, are you obey, the issue is, are you obeying the law? Now, some people take a lot more deductions than other people do, but all the deductions are legal. So it's not fair share because some people say, oh, well, you know, maybe I ought to give more. You know, you can put a guilt trip on somebody with some people that are, are, it's really the real question is: Are you paying? Paying? Are, are, are you obeying the law in the amount of taxes you're paying? That's the real issue. Are you? Because you, you can. People can. T- you, there's always these criticisms of, of people who have money who are using the law, and it's legal, and they don't pay that much taxes. But it's legal. The issue isn't. Fair share. The issue is, are you obeying the law? Because that's what the scripture emphasizes. So I would, I would take that a little bit. What's the status of your driving record? Jeff is going to give us a discourse on that later on. 
I, some of us always have issues with our driving record. I remember when the first time I ever mentioned that, that we are, were to obey the law, and that includes traffic laws, I had a guy from Arkansas who called me almost every week wanting to argue that, that disobeying a traffic law can't possibly be a sin. My position, just so we're clear. <laughs> I didn't. I've never lived in Arkansas. That's right. That's, that wasn't Jeff. I'm not imputing that to anybody. But there's a lot of Christians who are that way. Say, ah, uh, don't tell me how to drive. Is there a question when, when you start talking about are you paying your legally required amount? Is there a question of the spirit of the law versus letter of the law? I mean. Sure, you may be able to take a deduction. You may qualify for it, but maybe it wasn't intended for you. Or again, there are, there are, there are yeah. things that, like I said, those, know, those, yeah, those are all interesting things it's between the individual and the Lord as to how they're they're handling that. And you say, well, I'm I am obeying the law, and um, there's 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 always, uh, I think. Uh, Gray areas in here that that one believer may may be different in the way he handles it than another believer. Uh, but those are but they these are issues that you have to think through. You can't just do make just pick a position. You have to think them through uh, in terms of uh, in terms of a lot of different things. So the scripture is the most important. Um, so that's a good list that he's got there. His third step is to meditate on the Word, which I think is is very important. This is one of the reasons why I think the values of Bible study methods is because we have to learn how to properly think about the Word. And so you have to learn these principles so that when you read a passage of Scripture, you can properly understand it. And then as you think about it and reflect upon it, you can come to proper um, proper conclusions. And then his step four is to practice it, which means that we have to do what we say. One of the things that I, I, I had somebody sit next to me years ago, I won't mention who it was, because most of you know this person. Somebody sat next to me taking notes in church. And the way they took notes, when the principles were given from the pulpit, they converted it into a sentence, I must do X. It wasn't in sort of a third person distancing yourself, intellectualizing the principle. But if the principle was, you know, we are to confess our sins before we pray, I must confess my sin before I pray. I was really impressed with that. That was taking every principle and personalizing it in terms of an action plan. You didn't share with everybody that was me. I don't know if you were around then. <laughs> you couldn't write then. So, and then a good plan is, as you're studying something, is to try to memorize uh, the, a passage. And working through it in your mind once you've memorized it really helps you to think about what is being said and how it's being said. All right. Now, next week, 
Lorraine. We're not meeting for Bible study methods, but be here. We're having a special event. Uh, Dr. Susanna Kokanen, who is the head of the Christian desk at Yad Vashem, the um, uh, Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, is going to be here, and she's going to be talking about um, anti-Semitism. And then that will be followed. We'll have a short break. She'll talk from about 6.30 to 7.20. And then we'll have a short break, and then we'll have about 30 minutes for two presentations from two uh, I, they're in the reserves now, IDF soldiers, who were active in recent uh, uh, military incursions into Gaza Strip and other things, talking about what's going on in Israel. So it's going to be a really good, good event. So that's next week. So we'll come back in two weeks, which would be the 23rd, and then the last class will be on the 2nd of March. So we're, we've got two, actually two more classes dealing with application and putting everything together. And that will bring us to a conclusion for the Bible study methods class. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think about how to apply scripture, how to think about applying scripture, how to think about how scripture relates to us and the transformative power that your scripture should have in our lives, that we are to think differently and act differently because we are members of your royal family. And, Father, we know that as a result of that, even though our circumstances may be challenging, we will have a measure of stability and happiness and joy in our lives that surpasses uh, any comprehension. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.